When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Andrew Hickey, author of California Dreamin', the L.A. pop music scene in the 60s, joins Nate to talk about Los Angeles and the long, strange trip from surf rock to folk rock and beyond. Brian Wilson, Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, Harry Nilsson, Phil Spector, and the Little Feet are all discussed. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Andrew Hickey, author of California Dreaming, the LA pop music scene in the 60s. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. And and so happy to have you. I've, I've been enjoying your podcast, The History of Rock and Roll and 500 Songs for a long time. And you're kind of the polar opposite of me because you're so well prepared, everything's structured, scripted in advance, and we're all about winging it here. Um, so <laughs> get ready to improvise. But uh, yeah. So this book, California Dreaming, was a real treat. Um, it was interesting to me because I, I don't want to – claim head status but i've been into sunshine pop and the beach boys and the birds and all this stuff my entire adult life and it was interesting to read some of the reviews of this because you weave together a number of tales phil Spector, the beach boys the birds but also some like frank zappa randy newman harry nilson lowell george and little feet that you know rye cooter that I think a lot of people don't necessarily associate with this period because it's been so Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Laurel Canyon, Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills and Nash, et cetera. And I thought you did a great job of weaving in these threads. And yet there was so much going on in LA in this time. I have a list of another dozen bands. I want to ask you, why not them? Why not this guy? Why not that? So absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about like your interest in this amazingly fertile era and region. Well, it's sort of came about almost by accident. This this is quite an early book for me, and I've had to revisit it for this podcast because I wrote it six seven years ago now. So it's, uh, but I I I grew up listening to Frank Zappa from when I was very very young. Zappa and Beefheart were favourites of my dad, and so I was listening to that stuff 
basically from the time I was born. And then as a teenager, I also became a fan of both the Beach Boys and Randy Newman. And then a bit later, I also became a big Monkees fan. And the, the thing I noticed about all of these is, with the exception of the Monkees, these tend to be people who are regarded as unique on their own geniuses, um, you know, uh, the romantic ideal of the genius. But they all knew each other. They all worked with the same people. They all collaborated with the same people. And the, what I realized was that these people, Brian Wilson, Frank Zappa, Phil Spector, whoever, weren't individual romantic geniuses who'd self-created themselves. They were part of a gigantic scene that was there and that were that allowed them to be geniuses. Um, and so the book was sort of to explore that. Now, I have to say, um, I wouldn't write the same book now that I wrote then. In particular, I didn't focus nearly enough on how that scene was originally created by the black musicians of the 50s, which is something I really should have put in and something I'm trying to correct with the episodes and the podcast I'm doing now, because those people were working in a, in a scene that was originally created by people like Richard Berry, Johnny Otis, um, the, um Oh, my mind's gone black, but the, all, all the, the vocal You go back groups. to T-Bone Walker in the 40s. I'm about to talk to R.J. Smith yeah. about L.A. Central Avenue in the 40s. Yeah, and this is a scene yes. that really starts with independent labels and radio stations and African-American performers on Central Absolutely. Avenue, Nat King Cole. Absolutely. Um, yes, and, yeah. And, and also um, country, Bob Wills, et cetera, uh, you know, Spade Cooley yeah. and, and the yeah. Bakersfield scene and all that. So, yeah, I'm very glad you're bringing that up because this scene that we talk about, you start with the surf era. You start yes. it with a particular song, Moondog by the Gamblers, which yeah. features probably features Bruce Johnston, future Beach Boy and author of I Write the Songs on piano. And it this definitely does. It definitely does now. Um, I actually discovered even since I did my podcast episode on The Gamblers, which was only a couple of months back, Bruce Johnston has since listened to that record and said, I have no memory of doing this, but that is clearly me singing. So they, they definitely so he's confirmed it now. There's always been some doubt about that, but he said, yep, it's me. So so, yeah, and it's a fascinating point to begin with. And, and I understand you can't include everything. So I wasn't too worried about you leaving out the 50s R&B scene. And it does yeah. pop up. And, and we'll talk about Frank Zappa's first song uh, here in a minute that, that references some of that and is sung by one of the, the former Penguin. Yeah. I think it was credited to the Penguins, actually. But, you know, it was, th yes. this is a scene... This is a scene to me that's very much in the shadow of Phil Spector the whole time. And you talk about Phil Spector. And, and yes, the scene did start in L.A. with African-American performers on independent labels. But yeah. there are some major labels there, too. Capitol Records had been there uh, yeah. since they started in the 40s. And um, but Phil Spector was the guy who really brought modern big time recording biz from New York back to his home of L.A., his adopted home of L.A., you know, and, and session musicians start pouring in. But another guy who's a sort of a ghostly figure over this, and you reference him in, I think, one or two of the songs, was Sam Cooke, who's killed very yeah. early on in your narrative. And yeah. that's one I would really, like, if you ever re republish this book, I would really beg you to include a chapter on at least one or two Sam Cooke songs. Yeah. Well, um, I've, I've 
covered Sam Cooke a bit in my podcast. I'm going to cover him more uh, next month, actually. There's an episode on him coming up in that. And I'm, I'm sort of seeing, I, I sort of see this book now as being, in a way, a prototype for what I'm doing with the podcast in that it is linking all these narratives together. But yes, Sam Cooke was definitely, definitely a big part of um, the creation of a viable pop scene in um, L.A., um, with his work with Bob Keane and his work with Specialty Records and then later with RCA. Um, a lot of the Wrecking Crew musicians played, played on a lot of his records, as they did on records by people like Richie Valens in the 50s. Um, it's it's always difficult to figure to figure out exactly where, what to put in these things. And Cook, Cook, I feel, was a huge, huge influence on people it, on all the Motown acts, on all the Stax acts, all those kind of people. And he was a huge influence on a lot of the British artists, the, the Beatles and the Stones and so on. Um, but I don't think he was that important to your Beach Boys and your Jan and Deans and those kind of people. Um, he was certainly part of the same environment, um, but... I couldn't find a way of fitting him into the narrative without it sort of seeming like I was bending the narrative to incorporate him. If you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, and I want to get back to what you put in the book, and and less about what you didn't put in the book. So, but yeah. but but but, and I think also the death of Sam Cooke prematurely, which brought it into his record company, which throws a huge wrench in the career of his protege Bobby Womack and his group at the time, the Valentinos. Yeah, there's a reason Sam Cooke's not more present. He was he was taken out yeah. in the most horrible fashion. But, but the surf scene is very much, I think, associated with L.A. of the 60s. And it starts out. And I think one of the key things about this context that needs to be emphasized is that there were not just a few major labels there. And it wasn't just Phil Spector recording massive hits there and, and building what they came to be known as the wrecking crew, a new generation of studio musicians who were just ready made for the sixties rock and roll scene. But it was also all these indie labels. You've got Liberty records, A&M records, ABC Dunhill, yeah. you know, you've got all these players going and so many of them went to the same high school. Hollywood yes. high. Yes. Yeah. You know, tell us about that and some of those connections that start that dominate the surf era. Right. Well, early on, um, I <clears throat> basically there, there are two schools in LA that seem between them to have done, to have had a massive, massive impact on the whole of music history. One of them is Jefferson High, which is where all the R&B people went to, um, and one music teacher in particular. Um, you can basically the history of R&B music without that one teacher would be totally different, and indeed the history of jazz. Um, and then at Hollywood High, you had, off the top of my head, the people the people who went there included Bruce Johnston, who, who was in the Ripcords and the Beach Boys, um, Jan and Dean went there, Sandy Nelson, who had big hits with things like Let There Be Drums, went there. I think Spectre went there. If not, he was certainly associated with those people. Um, Nancy Sinatra... Yeah, um, I, I, some, some of these things, it's been a while since I've thought about them. And I, and my memory might not be completely correct, so I'm, no I'm trying to caveat things a bit. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Sinatra went there. Um, Randy Newman went there. All these people were at the, at the same school at the same time. Now, Hollywood High was a an upper-middle-class, rich white people school, um, whereas Jefferson High was a black people school. Um, and there were other schools in L.A. that had various famous people. There were a lot of huge talents around there. But the people at Hollywood High 
because they te- they tended to be able to get connections. You know, I mean, Nancy Sinatra went there, so obviously, you know, Nancy Sinatra had connections in the music industry. Um, a lot of a lot of these people were able to fairly early on get connections with people in the film and mu- music industry, and. Someone like someone like Randy Newman, for example, his best friend Lenny Warrenker, Lenny Warrenker's dad owned Liberty Records. You know, um, it's not and, and Randy Newman himself. His family were a family of film composers. His uncle and his cousins were very very famous composers for film soundtracks. So beca- because you had this cluster of people with connections with the music industry, a lot of them then became able very early on to. They they were both able to get not not usually connections with the big labels, but foot, feet in the door due to family connections. And they also tended to have more um, more free time and more abil- ability to play around without having to think of, think about their their futures. You know, um, you compare you compare those people to somebody like the to, to people like the Beach Boys who were from lower middle class families. You know, Mike Love of the Beach Boys had to go and work at a sheet metal factory. You know, um, pe- if if your dad is Frank Sinatra, you don't have to do that. You know, and and so the, these were all very privileged people, but that that privilege gave them the opportunity to experiment in a way in a way that very few other people could at the time and they, they were in the right place to do that experimenting absolutely classic right place at the right time and let's hear our first song this is memories of el monte by the penguins but it's actually co-written by a young frank zappa feeling so blue thinking about you and the love we once knew It brings back those memories of El Monte. Memories of El Monte by the Penguins, which was co-written by Frank Zappa. And this is a song I think that most directly connects the 60s surf scene and, and late end of the doo-wop scene with the, the late 50s African-American doo-wop scene that preceded it. And Jesse Belvin, who wrote Earth Angel and had been the founder of the Penguins, had passed away in a car accident in Arkansas before this happened. But they, they found one of the Penguin singers to record this. And it's um, it's classic. You know, obviously, Frank Zappa put out a doo-wop album, Ruben and the Jets, pretty early yeah. on in his career. So it's not a surprise to know that Frank Zappa could write a really good doo-wop song. But it's still pretty interesting to see young Frank Zappa uh, doing something commercial. And I think it's very telling that this was a song that references multiple songs and was written with a particular venue in mind, with, with yeah. a very calculated play to, ploy to get local play. Yeah, well, I mean, it was written about dances that happened at El, El Monte Stadium, which were actually run by the owner of a, uh, by uh, Art Roop, who later became um, oh, sorry Art LeBeau. I always get those two confused. By Art LeBeau, who later owned Original Sound Records, um, and he he started putting out these collections of oldies but goodies. The the first ever nostalgia albums for the fifties were coming out in the early sixties, um, and so 
by reference, I, I'm pretty sure Memories of El Monte came out on original sound, and by referencing Art LeBeau's particular shows, it was it was sort of a way to appeal to the owner of that label. Um, but those shows were very, very important in the late 50s um, music scene. Um, and they were very important to a lot of the people who came up in the 60s. Um, Bruce Johnston, who we talked about a little bit before, he actually played in the backing band at a lot of those El Monte shows. Um, he, he, he was actually a replacement. For the, uh, there was a band that played there. Most of them went off to join Dwayne Eddy's band, and some of them later became members of the Wrecking Crew. And so Bruce Johnston and Sandy Nelson actually played at the El Monte Stadium shows, replacing the people who went off to work for Dwayne Eddy. Um, and you, you you see a lot of people talk about those El Monte shows. Um, anybody from that from that era, they were primarily directed at a black audience. But the late fifties were one of the few times in American musical music history where there was enough integration that you have a lot of a lot of these white performers, your Frank Zappers and your Beach Boys and so on, were listening to the same music as black black people, which didn't really happen much before or since. Um, and so those shows were massively, massively important to people. And while obviously there is always an element of irony in literally everything that Frank Zappa ever did, he did sincerely love that do what music he was referencing there. And he, and memories of El Monte is as sincere a song as I've heard him write, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And another figure that I really should have started with uh, that you kind of weave a lot of these things together is a guy at Van Dyke Parks, who's mostly yes. remembered today as the lyricist for the infamous or and famous legendary aborted Beach Boys Smile album, but, and also the, the, performer and songwriter behind Song Cycle, his own album, but he's connected. Let me read one paragraph from your book. This is uh, Van Dyke Parks was already a major figure in the LA music scene before he started working with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Being involved in one way or another with Tim Buckley, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and the Mothers of Invention. So, and this is a common theme throughout this. And I, I think Van Dyke Parks, Harry Nilsson, and Randy Newman uh, as well as Brian Wilson and, and his associates like Gary Usher and others, yeah. like Glenn Campbell, weave their way throughout this whole thing. There are so many interwoven, interwoven threads. It's really yeah. difficult to pick one um, to follow. But tell us a little bit about Van Dyke Parks and why you see him as so central to the LA scene of this period. Um, well, he, I, I, he was – one of those people who sort of appears zelig-like everywhere. Um, he's he's always had a knack, even before he became famous, of turning up around famous people. Um, he talk, he often talks about how he played um, violin for Albert Einstein one time, and he just today tweeted about his sister dating Elvis Presley and things like things like this. Um, he is. Um, he, he's somebody who has always had the knack of appearing where interesting things were happening, but he is also this incredible talent. He, he's somebody who is not really rated the way he the way he should be because he because he's sort of an idiosyncratic person who's weaved his own path, but he is an incredible incredible musician and songwriter, um, and. He, at, at this time, he, he, he'd actually started out, he, his first 
sorry, his first piece of music that, that sort of became famous, he had arranged the bare necessities for the Disney film, The Jungle Book. Um, and then he'd gone on to be to be a session player and occasional songwriter in much the same way as people like Randy Newman were before Newman became famous. Um, he wasn't really part of the Wrecking Crew, but he, he sort of played on a lot of Wrecking Crew things. Um, but like he... He was the one who gave Buffalo Springfield their name in a conversation with Steve Stills. He he, he suggested the name to the group. Um, he was the one who he was the keyboard player for the Mothers of Invention early on before they before they got a record contract. Um, he um, he played on those Tim Buckley records with members of the Mothers of Invention. He he. He was just everywhere. Um, and people now think of him as just having done Smile because that became so hugely important to rock music legend. But he was he was on all sorts of records. He was on Bird's records. He was on Harper's Bazaar records. He, he was everywhere, uh, particularly in the sunshine pop kind of kind of thing. But he, he was all over the sort of Laurel Canyon scene as well. Yeah, and this book is full of fascinating characters like that. And the, and the surf era to me is dominated by Brian Wilson, obviously, who's consciously – he starts out doing this pretty unique variant of surf music. It's got nothing to do with what Dick Dale and, and the Ventures and others have been doing with instrumental guitar stuff. It's this yeah. sort of eccentric harmony, group harmony stuff that's like a cross between the four freshmen and Chuck Berry. Yeah. But he, he quickly draws this – group of acolytes and imitators like Terry Meltzer, Bruce Johnson, we've talked about, Gary Usher, who's a radio DJ, who becomes a, a songwriting partner, no, Brian no. Johnson. Uh, Gary, Gary, you're, you're confusing Gary Usher and Roger Christian Robert there. Christian, Roger you're Christian right, you're was right. a DJ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Usher was a musician before he met Brian Wilson, but not a very successful one. Cool. And, and Usher is somebody who writes with he co-wrote 409 with brian wilson and that's the song the dj roger christian complained about because he didn't approve yeah. of the car culture knowledge and usher uh then goes on to do imitations of brian wilson covering brian wilson's songs like little honda with a group like the hondells and then yeah. goes on to uh in the post sergeant pepper era form a group called sagittarius that's a um you know studio creation with glenn campbell on the vocals of of the closest they came to having a hit single. And this book is just full of these fascinating characters like that. And the next one I want to bring up, and let's hear what the first mark Harry Nilsson made on the scene. And this is a group called MFQ, which originally stood for the Modern Folk Quartet. They changed the number of members in the group, so they shortened it to MFQ. They come under the sway of Phil Spector, who had wanted to sign Love and Spoonful, who let Sonny and Cher get away from him, but he wanted to get in on the folk rock scene, which is the second wave. They that you cover in the book and he takes mfq under his arm he finds a young songwriter named harry nilson who's working in the computer department at a bank and they take this song this could be the night and cut it in the studio this is mfq this could be the night That's MFQ doing Harry Nilsson's This Could Be the Night. And the thing to keep in mind at this point is Phil Spector is red hot. He's coming off the biggest hit of his career with the Righteous Brothers. You've lost that love and feeling. Everybody is 
everybody in the music world is anxiously awaiting what is Phil Spector going to do next. He sees the folk rock scene as the hot thing. The Birds obviously have emerged in L.A. and had a massive hit backed by the wrecking crew on Mr. Tambourine Man doing a Dylan song. And Phil Spector doesn't actually release this song. What's the deal? Yeah. Well, that that was used as the um, theme music for a show called The Big TNT Show, which um, was the sequel to a, to a very, very big popular uh, rock music film called uh, The Tammy Show. This was the sequel. It had people like Ike and Tina Turner. I can't remember who else. Like, I always get who was on which of these two shows confused. But it had a, a lot of the big acts of 1965 on that show. And <clears throat> this could be the night was used as a theme for that. And then Spectre never released it as a single. It didn't come out until on, on, on a record till the mid-70s. Um, even though like, people like Brian Wilson, he became a obsessed with that just from seeing the film and sort of absorbed the record and he said that's one of his favorite songs of all time um but at this time specter was becoming eccentric in his choices he was recording a lot of stuff that just that he just didn't release uh particularly the songs he, he, he was working on with nilson didn't get released nilson wrote a couple of great songs for well he wrote a great song called paradise for the ronettes and he wrote a very funny song um here i sit for the ronettes which um is actually based on the the, the graffiti from toilet walls here i sit brokenhearted paid a diamond only farted he, he, he changed that to here i sit brokenhearted fell in love and now we parted and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't read the writing on the wall was the next line, you know. Um, but Spectre was recording all this stuff. He, he was recording albums and albums worth of material and just actually releasing the odd single at this time. Um, and nobody has ever been able to understand why Spectre made the choices he made. He, he was... Uh, both a, a very private person and a person who liked to manipulate other people. So you can never trust why this, this happened. But I mean, this could be the night that is so clearly a big hit that could have happened. You know, when you, when you're looking at 1965, this, this is right. Perfect for that sort for that sort of time period. It, it, it's, uh, you, you can see, you can see a, straight line for, between the loving spoonful and the turtles and that sort of right in the middle of right in the middle of it and the people in mfq went on to do a lot of other things particularly um, chip douglas went on to then produce for the the monkeys and he was in the turtles during their biggest period and this kind of thing the it makes no sense at all that that record was never released but it wasn't yeah yeah and it's it's Odd, because this is a period when everybody else in L.A., including, you know, Spectre's former valet, Sonny Bono, who, who was a songwriter, co-wrote Needles and Pins. But, you know, up to this point, before Sonny and Cher, Sonny's biggest claim to fame is that the Rolling Stones wrote a song about him, the West Coast, under assistant promo man. And, yeah. you know... Had Spectre had the gifts of somebody like Barry Gordy, he could easily have built an empire around people like yeah. Jack Nitsche and and Sonny Bono, who who went on to produce and A and R their own hit records uh, without him. But Spectre's just completely <clears throat> falling apart, and it's sort of a precursor of what's going to happen to the whole scene after yeah. Monterey and after '67, where you know they have this period where. You can't go wrong. You've got Terry Melcher working with the birds. Boom, number one hit. You've got John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas coming into town and getting with Lou Adler. Boom, series of massive hits. You yeah. know, and and Sonny and Cher uh, have massive hits, backed by the Wrecking Crew. 
you've got Love who follows the birds onto the Sunset Strip live scene and uh, has big regional hits with My Little Red Book. And it's the kind yeah. of thing you want to go back in time and tell Arthur Lee, the you know African-American leader of Love, get on the plane and do the Ed yes. Sullivan show, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us yeah. a little bit about Arthur Lee, because he's one of the most fascinating characters and really is one of the few African-Americans to take a leading role in this scene. Yes, yeah. Arthur Lee was, he was another one who can politely be described as eccentric. He was another self-sabotaging genius. Um, he is somebody who'd been around the scene for years. He'd, he'd uh, made records, he'd actually made records with Jimi Hendrix early on before either of them became famous. Um, he'd been doing soul music and yeah. But then in the mid-60s, he formed a band that became that were known as the Grassroots, but then changed the name to Love when another record lab label quickly rushed out a record by a studio group called the Grassroots. Um, and this was one of the few multiracial bands on the scene. There were a few. The Mothers of Invention, for example, were multiracial, but their, their other members were Native American and Mexican. Um, Love had two black members and three white members at in the beginning, they, they had a series of lineup changes. Um, and they were, if you listen to the, if you listen to their early records, they're absolutely fascinating in the, in that they are folk rock, but also proto punk in a way that's, uh, that there's, there's a sort of garage rock energy to them. Um, but they're, but they're still full of this folk rock jangle. Um, and Arthur Lee, deserves to be regarded as one of the greats of 60s pop and rock music um but he he wouldn't tour outside the la area at all for any reason you know he he was invited to play woodstock he refused to go he was invited onto the ed sullivan show refused to go and so he he, he never really had the recognition he deserved to the point where i remember i saw arthur lee playing a tiny club in about 2003 and i, I was chatting with the sound engineer before before and he was saying oh, these new young groups they're all they're, look at look at that row of um foot pedals they've, they've got there jimmy hendrix people like that would never use that and i had to explain to him that arthur lee had played with Jimi Hendrix before Hendrix was famous. This was not a new young group. You know, this was this this was somebody who was precisely the kind of person he was saying. Yeah, but he he was to to put to put it mildly, he was interesting. Uh, he he was a very paranoid person, as a lot of these people are. There's a lot of very paranoid people in this story uh whether whether due to drug use or whether due to the influence of the other paranoid people it, it's hard to say um but he, he he his lyrics would be things like oh this not as caked against my pants it has turned into crystal there's a bluebird sitting on the branch i think i'll get my pistol i've got it in my hand because she's on my land you know this this when, when when you're talking about the mid '60s, when everything else is love, peace, and happiness, and this is the lead singer of a band called Love, who is singing, sitting on the hillside, watching all the people die, it's it's this very macabre, apocalyptic feel to a to a lot of his stuff, but often couched in this very very beautiful music. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, that's that's Arthur Lee anyway. And let's take a quick sponsor break. And when we get back, I'll talk about one of the reasons, one of the people that gave people in LA very good reason to be paranoid. 
you talk about the paranoia and yes, people like Phil Spector and Brian Wilson and Arthur Lee had a lot of self-inflicted apologies for the puppy, uh, self-inflicted paranoia, but love is one of the first instances that crosses paths with a group that's later going to become world infamous and love briefly had a rhythm guitar player named Bobby Beausoleil who goes on to be the, become the first uh, killer in the Manson family. And the Manson is another shadow that haunts this group. And at, at the end, we'll talk about his relationship with the Beach Boys. But, you know, John Phillips wrote a song about what later turned out to be the Manson girls wandering around dazed on Sunset Strip. So there's very much this undercurrent of real menace and real fear in the scene. It's not just privileged guys cruising around in sports cars, uh, you Absolutely. know, with cool haircuts and, and, and getting their party on. There's, there's a real element of American darkness in this era. And there's this massive sea change that you describe in the book. In, in 65, 66, LA is absolutely the center of the pop music world, competing with London and Detroit. Uh, you know, very much a three-way war for who's yeah. going to control it. Obviously, New York and Memphis and other places are, are thrown in their 10 cents here and there, but LA is on top. And they start to organize a music festival to be placed to happen in Northern California and Monterey. And John Phillips is on the board. Uh, kind of took over the thing in a, a little coup from the original planners and yeah. the association who are red hot for a number of hits are going to play. The beach boys are going to debut stuff from the unreleased smile album. There, Buffalo Springfield's going to play. The birds are going to play. It seems like LA is going to coronate themselves as the absolute Kings of rock, yeah. but they invite a lot of these up and coming scruff bands from San Francisco. And there's an enormous sea change in music history. Yeah. It's it's a, a, weird, a weird one. Uh, partly it's because the Beach Boys ended up not playing that that gig um, for a variety a variety of reasons, mostly due to the collapse of the Smile album that they were working on at the time. Um, and then a couple of the LA performers played badly. The Mamas and the Papas didn't do a great set. Uh, the Birds were very shoddy at Monterey. You know, they, 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 the Birds in particular were going through all sorts of personnel changes and squab interpersonal squabbles and stuff like that. And so you have these um, LA, LA performers not at their best. <clears throat> and then you have these people, these Southern California people and people associated with that. You've got your um, Big Brother and the Holding Company. And I mean, Northern California. Dead. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, the Northern California people, um, the, the San Francisco bands, um, doing very, very well in, in, for the same audience. Um, and if you if you look at if you look at their performances, most of those aren't actually that great as well. But there's less expectation on them. And if you've got new young people doing okay and people you expect to be great doing okay, then the expectations are suddenly flipped. You, the association and the birds and the mamas and the papas all look like yesterday's news. Um, and added to that, you've got the rise of Rolling Stone magazine around this time. And Rolling Stone magazine, basically, just to this day, the, the editorial line of Rolling Stone magazine is still skewed by a hatred of LA because uh, because of it being where Hollywood is and the idea that LA music is plastic and it's Hollywood and it's commercial, whereas the the San Francisco bands playing twenty seven hour long guitar guitar solos on one chord were keeping it real, man. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. and 
<laughs> and so su- suddenly everything changes around these people. Now, LA still remains a prominent place for pop music. Um, you still, you know, Monterey was right in the middle of the monkeys heyday and you still you still have all the all the folk rocky people your neil youngs and your Joni mitchells uh, and your singer songwriter types like randy newman all were still all based in la and there, there was still a lot of successful music coming out of la but monterey seems to be seems to be the turning point where pop music stops being hip and you have to you have to go into what you ha- the, there is a distinction now between pop music and rock music, and you have to pick what side you're on. And a lot of these bands, the, the harmony vocal bands particularly, were by default put on the pop music side, and so cool people didn't like them. Um, and it's very sad because some of them were, were making some of the best music of their career around this time, but, you know, that's that's how fashions change. Absolutely. And one element we didn't bring up about Monterey was that the real kings of that show, Otis Redding, back to Booker T and the MGs, killed it yeah. there and broke through to a white audience. And nobody was going to top that band, period. And yeah. and the other two acts that really killed were The Who and the Jimi Hendrix experience. Jimmy's obviously yeah. from Seattle by way of New York, but he came up in London, and that's a London yeah. band. And the club scene in London with their Marshall stacks uh, and their violent attack was just very, very hard to compete with. And and the yeah. San Francisco bands had been playing bigger ballrooms than you had in LA. So they were, I think, somewhat yeah. more suited to that environment. But the other big element, and, and, and this is one bone I want to pick with you that you kind of left out, is that there's also the ghost of Sgt. Peppers over all this. The Beatles withdraw yeah. from live performance after they could no longer, the sound systems were just not up to competing with 60,000 <laughs> screaming girls in a stadium. Beatles yeah. drop out. A lot of people think they're finished. They come out with Sgt. Pepper, and it's this – you cannot understate the cultural impact in 1967 of Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, you had people in Absolutely. hotel lobbies listening to this album en masse, people opening up their windows and entire neighborhoods playing the records at the same time. Yeah. And so I think that for people like Gary Usher and his Sagittarius Project or Kurt Butcher, who produced the first Association album and goes on to found the Millennium and – you know, David Marks, the ex-Beach Boy, who who forms a group called The Moon, there's this idea that we don't need to tour, we don't need to be a live band. We yeah. can be like Arthur Lee and just go into the studio and make a masterpiece, and the record companies are just throwing massive money yeah. at this stuff. And so um, there's this feeling, you know, Brian Wilson spends – Ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on good vibrations, and then goes in and produces Smile, which doesn't even come out, but people are hearing yeah. about it. Leonard Bernstein has it on a TV special, and so there's this idea of the pop rock musician as an artiste with lavish yeah. funding and studio time, and and. Yeah, there's so many threads here, and, and I'm not doing the best job of getting them all in. I'm glad you brought in the Monkees because their success is just absolutely immense in 66 with the the number one tv show every one of their songs goes to the top of the charts it's a combination of you know don kirshner of the brill building is the music supervisor but he's using a a la songwriting team voice and heart to drive most of the music and so the monkeys kind of become a symbol of this moment where one moment they're as hot as it can possibly get there's two seasons of the tv show this pop to rock thing happens and suddenly they're not cool at all anymore. 
Yeah, which is which again is really sad because they were making some of the best music of their career at that time too. Um, the the Monkees are a really interesting band in this regard because they 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 were trying to be the people that. They were trying. They were trying to be part of this sort of more hip, more cooler side of things. You know, um, they had Frank Zappa and Tim Buckley on their TV show. Um, they had Neil Young playing on their records. Um, they. Um, when Captain Beefheart's Magic Band uh, had a problem with their equipment, Mike Nesmith bought them new equipment. You know, um, Davy Jones wrote a song about Captain Beefheart for the GTOs, a group of groupies that Frank Zappa was producing. They were really trying to be part of this counterculture thing, but they just... And they, they made some astonishing, astonishing records, but they just, because they came came up as a manufactured pop group at precisely the moment when this split between manufactured pop and hip rock happened, you know, they were just completely disowned by these people. I mean, you know, Mickey Dolans was at Monterey in the audience and Peter Talk did, did the stage announcements for the Birds and Buffalo Springfield and stuff there. You know, they, they were part of this scene, but they were just completely obliterated in terms of hip credentials and obviously when it comes to teen pop stuff you've only got a two or three year lifespan anyway and so yeah they 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 go from being the biggest band in the world for a year to you know getting the singles to number 50 it's it's a really a really sad story because it's all their loss of credibility was all about perception and nothing to do with the reality of the music they were making or who they were as people. Absolutely. And let's hear one of those later period songs. This is a song I didn't know of until I read the book. And this, this is a song where you credit Davy Jones with inventing grunge. This is the monkeys. You and I. the monkeys you and i with neil young on guitar yeah and that's actually i i i'm doing this from memory but i think that's the first ever recorded evidence of that neil young guitar sound that that's recorded right around the same time as the everybody knows this is nowhere album i think before that album um and you know if you listen to neil young's playing on the buffalo springfield records of his first solo album it's not that big loud distorted Neil Young guitar sound that you now think of from you know Russ Never Sleeps and all that kind of thing. So this is the first time that Neil Young is really allowed to let go on that that kind of playing, and this is on a Monkeys album track, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's fascinating stuff, and and the, one of the undercurrents of this book is this struggle for control between singer-songwriters and producers. At the beginning of the 60s, American rock had distilled into this formula where people like Barry Gordy, Smokey Robinson, Phil Spector, Lieber and Stoller are the the producer is the auteur. The producer picks the song. The producer picks the musicians. The producer often cuts the song before the vocalist even comes in. In the case of Phil Spector, he might decide to release a record by the Crystals with none of the Crystals on the record. Just bring in yeah. Darlene Love and, and some other studio assassins, cut this record and, and call the girls on the road and tell them they've got a new hit song they need to learn. And yeah. 
you get a group like the birds, which falls out with the original producer, Terry Meltzer, as you say in the book, because at one point Meltzer cuts a version of a Bob Dylan song. I think it's all over now, baby blue with session musicians and wants Roger McGuinn to overdub his vocals and guitar on it. And they say no. And the monkeys had the most prolonged and dramatic rebellion like that. I mean, Mike Nesmith punches a wall in a big meeting with the heads of their record label and their TV shows and says, you know, that could have been your face MF -er." and they win. Suddenly the monkeys get to play their own instruments, even though while very talented musical people, they're not necessarily jobbing musicians that are ready to be a a road ready rock band, but they put in the work and actually do tour live. And so, yeah, it is pretty amazing. And also if you watch the movie head that they made with Bob Ruffleson and Jack Nicholson, it's better than easy rider. Um, Oh, absolutely. No question. Wonderful film. Wonderful film. And and both of them are aiming for that same freak out drug, intelligent, sarcastic, cynical, ironic take on society audience. But, you know, the, the monkeys were so tainted with that. You're a manufactured pop band. And, yeah. you know, the Beatles, again, because they were a self-contained unit that wrote their own songs, that sang their own songs, that played their own instruments, that did their own arrangements, that controlled everything. <clears throat> Between them and Bob Dylan, they set this sort of impossible standard that, that everyone else – in that yeah. era is trying to meet. And so the last thread I want to weave in here though is 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 in addition to the sunshine pop and the folk rock, there's this undercurrent of blues rock that runs through this whole thing. Obviously you've got Zappa and Captain Beefheart that are uh yeah. Zappa's a one-off. I mean he's primarily yeah. a modernist classical composer disguised as a pop musician, but when he wants to, yeah. he can absolutely rock with the best of them. Beefheart is a monster. And there's a guy named Ry yeah. Cooter who oh, yes. is is throughout this. Originally in one of the other integrated bands that, that was big on the Sunset Strip circuit, the Rising Suns with Taj Mahal on vocals. And it really pains me that I'm not that I didn't play uh the, the Take a Giant Step song by the Rising Suns, another one yeah. I had heard um brilliant song by a band who couldn't find their own identity in the studio, but then Cooter plays with Beefheart and, and, you know, he and people like Lowell George and Graham Parsons comes into the scene and sort of Americana is kind of born out of this scene as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, there is a huge, uh, Ray Cooter is obviously possibly the most influential guitarist of the 60s, even though people don't think of him that way. But if you listen to any, like, 70s Rolling Stones record, it's Keith Richards being Raikuda. Um And he he was, the, like, this young, freaky genius. Um, but, yeah, he, he formed this band, the, the Rising Suns, with Taj Mahal, and they made some great records which didn't really get released at all at the time. Um Take a Giant Step's an interesting one in that respect because that was that was also cut by the Monkees in a completely different version. It's a Goffin and King song. Um, and but yeah, he was a very a lot of the a lot of these people were very studious lovers of blues music. Um, Canned Heat comes out of this scene as well, and people like that. A, a lot of them were scholars, and Ray Kuda is one of the few people in this uh, who is both a scholar of music and an incredibly inventive musician himself. Normally it's one or the other. A lot of people like Canned Heat made records, made good records a lot of the time, but they were 
trying very hard to recreate something that was made by their black heroes decades earlier. Ray Kuda absorbed people like Hubert Sumlin, Howlin' Wolf's guitarist, and things like that, and came up with his own style. And there's a whole country element to Ray Kuda's playing that then became a big thing in a lot of the country rock bands. Um, and yeah, he played with Beefheart for a while. He, he was never formally a member of the Magic Band, I don't think. Um, but he was he was going to be, and then he, he, fell, he fell out with Beefheart because everybody fell out with Beefheart. Um, but he played and produced most, uh, uncredited produced, most of the first Captain Beefheart album, Safe as Milk, um, which, is, which is a fascinating album in a lot of ways because it's... It's an attempt to find a, a path between the you know, the stuff that Captain Beefheart was doing, which for those of you who do, don't know Beefheart's work, he his music is basically taking the timbre of Chicago blues like Howlin' Wolf and playing it with the rhythms and harmonies of modern jazz people like Ornette Coleman and then shouting beat poetry over the top. Um, so, but Beefheart's first album seems to be trying to thread a path between that and your more conventional pop rock stuff, and even the kind of studio stuff that the Monkees were doing. You listen, you listen to that first Beefheart album, and you've got th- you've got things like um, Dropout Boogie, which which is very heavy, hard blues rock. But you've also you've also got, you've also got all these songs full of full of harpsichords and uh, th- things like I'm Glad, which is which is a do wop soul ballad and the, the, there was this real belief among some people at this point uh, people people like Zappa and Beefheart um, but, but also people like Ray Kuda, people like Graham Parsons that it was all, all of these had this in their own different ways Van Dyke Parks is another one that it was possible to incorporate all American musics into something that that could be simultaneously commercial and creative and avant-garde um frank zappa talks about talks about hearing like a rolling stone on the radio for the first time and thinking okay there's almost no need for me now people people will accept this you know this this is this is on the radio there was there was this belief that there was a much bigger commercial market for creative inventive music but also that you could have music that incorporated howling wolf and the beach boys and edgar Varese at the same time and obviously that very quickly people very quickly realized that that was not the case and if you're not me then you you, you don't want to hear all those things you know well yes um, and no i mean the the thing about this is a crapshoot you know captain beefheart comes out and, and you talk about his first single that was on a&m do i diddy which was a big regional hit in 65 and beefheart is a white kid who sounds just like helen wolf so yeah. he and he's associated with Zappa. He draws talent to him like a magnet. He's got the best rockers in Central California um, drawn to him. And and you know, uh, even after A and M drops him, uh, another record label. And I'm forgetting who put out. Uh, yeah, Buddha puts out Safe as Milk. People think, you know, this guy could be a big thing. He's he's a blues yeah. rock king. Somebody like John French, who becomes Drumbo and the musical arranger for Trout Mask Replica, is somebody who wanted to be Ginger Baker and could have made a good run at it. You, you know, you're oh, talking yeah, about getting yeah. the best blues rock musicians of the time and tell them to play as if they're imitating modern jazz but not improvising. It's, it's very strange, yeah. like you say. But at the same time, 
somebody like Nilsson, who also can be seen as totally eccentric and uncommercial, has yeah. this immense, immense monster hit that's the theme song for Midnight Cowboy. So yeah. it's very much a roll of the dice and who hits with the right song at the right time. And so yeah. far as who becomes a commercial behemoth and, and who falls by the wayside. And yeah. You know, there's so much to this book, but I want to play another song that I was introduced to uh, by this book, and that's Little Feet Willin'. And we'll talk about Lil' George after that. Sure. By the rain, driven by the snow, I'm drunk and dirty. Don't you know when I'm still? Oh, I'm still. Walk out on the road late at night. I see my pretty Alice in every headlight. Alice, Alice, Alice. I've been from Tucson to Tucum, Kerry, to Hatchbeat to Tony Paul, driven every kind of rig that's ever been. And that's Bold George's Little Feet doing Willin'. And this is a song, I, I've been allergic to Little Feet my whole life. I made a couple of tepid stabs to, to get into their music, but that period of, of rootsy Americana, early 70s stuff, for whatever reason, because of my generational placement, I was always allergic to. And this song really sells me on Little Feet, so thank you. I, I, yeah. This this opened the door, and now I've been enjoying the first couple albums quite a bit. But tell us about Lowell George and the way he weaves through this tapestry. Well, Lowell George, he started out... Um, he he was one of those people who was around the edges of the scene and he becomes a, a big part of the story when he joins the Mothers of Invention in about 1968. Um, Frank Zappa uh, was, most of his career, uh, the, most, of, most of the time of the 60s and 70s, Zappa was the only guitarist in his bands. Later he'd get other guitarists in regularly. But for much of the 60s and 70s, he was, he was the sole lead guitarist. But he would still occasionally get in a, a rhythm player, and he had some really good ones. Um, and Lowell George joins just in just in time to play on the last couple of albums by the original Mothers. Um, he's on, I think he's on Uncle Meat. He's definitely on Weasel's Rip My Flesh. He might be on a couple of others around that time because they were all recorded in, they, they weren't recorded in the same sequence they were put out. Um, but then the original Mothers of Invention collapses and Lowell George, he first, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember, I, I think he was in Fraternity of Man for a while with with, uh, with Elliot Ingber. Yeah, and they have a all... massive song on the on the Easy Rider soundtrack, which is a yeah. classic case of a not very good song, novelty number that gets yeah. on one of the biggest selling soundtracks. Don't that time. drunk for me, yeah. 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 And Elliot Ingber is somebody who, who had also been part of this whole scene throughout. He was on, uh, he he played on Moondog by the Gamblers, which is the very first song I talk about in this. And then he'd been in Zappa's band, and he goes on to be in Beefheart's band later under the name Wingdeal Fingerling. Um, and so, so Lowell George, after being in Fraternity of Man for a little bit, uh, he, he also had his own band, The Factory, before he joined the Mothers, and they, they made some very interesting records as well. And then he goes on to form with Roy Estrada, who was the bass player in the original mothers they formed this new band little feet which again Rai Kuda is involved in the first couple of albums and they basically they're, they're one of the people in this scene who invents modern country rock music um along with Graham Parsons and along with Mike Nesbitt of the Monkees actually all these people invented the style that then people like the Eagles and so on took on in the 70s um and Lowell George he he was somebody who if you listen to some of some of his earlier records, like Lightning Rod Man by Lowell George and the Factory, that's very much a sort of Captain Beefarty screaming, clanking record. But he could... Oh, I'm terribly sorry. 
he goes on to make these very mellow, doper um, country rock albums. Um, and yeah, it, it's unfortunate that I, 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 like you, I'm not a big fan of that whole 70s laid back country rock sound. But Lowell George actually made some great records in that sound. And it's, it's annoying that his music is sort of sonically tied in with with the later bands that were imitating him, people like the Eagles, who I don't particularly rate at all. Um, and it's hard to listen to his records now with, without those associations. But he wrote some really, really good songs, things like Roll Em Easy and so on, a phenomenal songwriting. Um, and yeah, he, he, he had a lot of commercial success, but he's still sort of underrated as part of this, you know. Yeah, and as history goes on, all of these people are heading towards oblivion, you know, just like Bing Crosby and Al Jolson, no matter how big you get yeah. in your era, when your audience dies out, it's a whole new sea, and, you know, real roll of the dice to see who's going to be remembered and who's going to be forgotten. But Andrew Hickey, you've done a lot to help these people be remembered. You've deepened my appreciation of this music. The book is California Dreaming, the L.A. pop music scene in the 60s, and your podcast. Tell everybody about your podcast, because I think it's awesome. Well, my podcast is it's called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. And what I'm doing, I am going from 1938 through to the year 2000 and looking at the most important songs in rock music. I'm so, I'm, I've just recorded, like literally an hour before we did this, I've just recorded the 110th episode, which will be up in a couple of days. And I'm up to 1963. That one's on Be My Baby by the Ronettes. And it's taking very much the same sort of attitude as this book did. Um, I'm weaving different strands of di with different people's stories in it, in it and showing how they interact. So it's, it starts it starts in 1938 with the first recordings with electric guitar and things, things like Flying Home by the Betty Goodman sextet. And and so far, I've proceeded through the, through the um, people like the Ink Spots and Louis Jordan, who, who were sort of prototypes for early early rock and roll. Then through all the uh, Bill Haley and Elvis Presley and all those kind of people. And now I'm up, now up to the early '60s. I've just recently, in the last few months, done the first episodes on the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Dylan and the Rolling Stones. Um, I, but I'm showing all the way how these people were building on each other's work, how these people were influencing the, each other, and also tying the stories of a lot of the people who were sort of backroom people who don't really get recognized for it. Like uh, one of the big threads during the fifties is the career of Johnny Otis, who was hugely influential on all sorts of musicians and who only had a couple of sort of novelty hits himself, but without whom we wouldn't have rock and roll as we know it today. And a, lo a lot of these people in the California Dreaming book were very, very influenced by Johnny Otis. Frank Zappa was listening to Johnny Otis's radio show and actually got Johnny Otis to play with his band uh, on a few mid-60s Mother's records. Um, Brian Wilson talks about listening to Johnny Otis on the, ra on the radio as a kid. And Mike Love of the Beach Boys is clearly a Johnny Otis fanatic. You can tell from all his bass vocal parts that he's been listening to records that Johnny Otis did. And like Arthur Lee, um, one of the things Johnny Otis did, because he was he was a, 
an actor, a community activist as well. And he he had a thing where he taught kids how to raise pigeons. And uh, uh, Arthur Lee was one of the kids that Johnny Otis taught how to how to raise animals when when he was, when he was a kid. So I'm, I, I talk about all these people, the people who don't really get the recognition, and people like Jesse Belvin, who wrote Earth Angel and was a big influence on Sam Cooke. Um, but I also do I talk about your Buddy Hollies and your Little Richards and all the, the famous people as well. And I'm trying to create one big. 500 episode narrative that will encompass the whole of mainstream rock and roll music now obviously that's not actually going to be possible because that's roughly 10 songs a year from 1950 to 2000 i'm dealing with and there are more than 10 important songs in every year there are going to be people i miss out but the aim is to the aim of it is to give people an appreciation for the music that they might have dismissed because I, it, it was inspired by, I did a popular music history course at university that, like 20 years ago, but I, I still remember this. And in one of the early lectures, they played a bit of a, a Carl Perkins record and they said at the end, sort of jokingly, don't worry, we don't expect you to actually listen to this stuff for fun. And I, I did listen to Carl Perkins for fun. And I was thinking, how on earth... Do they expect people to learn about rock music history if they are dismissing the idea that you might be able to listen to Carl Perkins for fun? So my hope, <laughs> my hope of the, for this podcast by, by the time it's finished is that people will be able to understand why Fats Domino or Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly or the more obscure people I've talked about, like Vince Taylor, why these people were popular, why people like them, why you might want to listen to them for fun. And hopefully people will be able to listen to those people for fun. And people who've started listening to it because they're fans of Elvis or Buddy Holly might eventually end up being able to listen to Nirvana or R.E.M. for fun when they, they, they would dismiss that or whoever, you know. And it's an idea to create a, a cohesive, uh, to put these things in context so that people understand why why the music is good and so people can appreciate the music in a way that they might not otherwise have been able to that's what i attempt to do whether i whether i succeed or not is obviously up to the listeners well i, I enjoy it very much it's one of the few podcasts i listen to and you also transcribe each show so you can read and scan it if you don't have time to listen and i view it as very much a compliment to what i'm doing and some of the things you mentioned you know i, I was honored to have ed ward on so, for so many episodes and I, and I look forward to having him back to, especially to talk about gospel in this coming year which he's a real specialist at but you know ward's history like anybody else's is not perfect and he really undervalues the role of swing and jazz in early rock and roll and so i love seeing yeah. you emphasizing charlie christian and count basie and other people that patently had a massive role and influence yeah. on rock and roll but anyway andrew it's been great fun having you on the show and i hope we can have you back on again sometime i look forward to your next book very much thanks talk to you soon bye Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with Adam Steiner to talk Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.
California Dreaming, the L.A. pop music scene in the 60s, is available from all major booksellers. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.